Isaiah chapter 56, beginning in verse 3. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me, And hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants... Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. This week when I googled the phrase, taking photos of your house, my search produced 668 million results. 668 million! Apparently there's quite a bit of interest these days in taking quality photographs of your home. Here's a few examples of what my search turned up. How to photograph your house, tips from the experts. I didn't know there were experts on such a subject. Here's another one. Take great home photos the easy way. As if there's a difficult way to photograph your house. I mean, think about it. It's not like your house is going to move when you get ready to shoot it or blink or not smile. Here's another one. Tricks for taking good photos of your home. Why do you have to be tricky to take a good home photo? I don't know. And here's my favorite. Capture the magic. You you take a picture of your house, and then the company photoshops into your photo either Santa, the Easter Bunny, or the Tooth Fairy. How about that one? I imagine with the changes in real estate and the posting of homes for sale on the Internet, if your house is going to sell quickly these days, you probably need some nice photos. A couple of websites suggested that a home seller should actually go out and hire a professional photographer to take pictures of their house. It's a good investment if you want a speedy sale. Well, here in Isaiah chapter 56, God takes a picture of his house. Now, he's not selling it, or or perhaps he is. I suppose he is selling it to us. He's promising the outcast and the disenfranchised a place even a name in his house. And the prophet snaps a beautiful photo here. An expert couldn't have done a better job capturing the magic. This picture conveyed in Isaiah 56 of God's house is an intriguing one. It should encourage the worshiper. You see, God has a house, and it is surprising all that we find there. We've been studying portraits of Jesus in the prophecy of Isaiah, but this morning is different. Rather than a picture of the Lord himself, our picture today is of his house. 
Yet ask an interior designer and they'll tell you that a person's house is a reflection of their personality, their likes, their lifestyle, the colors they choose and the materials they use, the floor design and the utilization of space, the furniture they picked out and how they arrange it. It all reflects the priorities of the homeowner. And nowhere is this truer than in God's house. Go back and study Exodus, and you'll find that when God first built his house, the tabernacle, he gave Moses a set of blueprints, exact specifications for the size and layout and construction and materials and furniture in his house. When Solomon built the temple, a permanent house for God, the same pattern was followed. 1 Kings chapter 6 tells us that the temple was like the tabernacle on steroids. Stones replaced skins. Stability now replaced mobility. Size replaced speed. One lamp and one laver was now replaced by ten. You see, a tabernacle designed for wilderness wandering was replaced with a temple that would last indefinitely. Which means that God wasn't afraid to remodel. This is important. You see, the tabernacle was perfect for a nation of nomads. But once Israel settled into the land, a more permanent temple was appropriate. God wasn't afraid of change. In fact, God is never afraid of change in his house. If the carpet wears out, he might just replace it with polished concrete. And this wasn't just the case with the tabernacle and the temple. But God remodeled a third time. When his people had outlived skins and stones, God replaced them with spirit. He built a spiritual house that we now call his church. Today, God's house is a spiritual dwelling, a building not made with limestones, but the Bible says living stones. You and I are the blocks and the beams. We are the skins and the linens of this house. The church, this church, not the building we're sitting in, but our bonded hearts and our interaction with each other is every bit the house of God as was the tabernacle and the temple. Together, you and I are a spiritual house. And the vibe should be the same in all three of God's houses, tabernacle and temple and church. You see, what Isaiah says of the temple should also be true of the church. Check out Isaiah's photo here in Isaiah 56. You'll see how God's house should look. And three traits characterize his house. You can write these down. Inclusion, conviction, and devotion. Inclusion, conviction, and devotion. Here's a passage that's important. In fact, it was important to Jesus. He actually quoted this passage at a very critical moment in his ministry. We'll talk about it a little later. Isaiah gives us a photo, and we should look at it carefully. For in it, do we recognize Calvary Chapel? If not, then what changes need we make? Notice the first characteristic of God's house is the inclusion that you find. Isaiah addresses two types of people from his time who were basically on the outside of society looking in. The son of the foreigner and the eunuch were both disenfranchised from Jewish society and even from the temple worship. Leviticus chapter 21 and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 23, 
barred the eunuch from God's house. Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 states, He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Judaism considered it a duty for a man to procreate, to be fruitful and multiply. Obviously, a eunuch lacked the needed equipment to do the job. As a matter of fact, did you hear about the actor who was a eunuch? He turned down a role role in an upcoming film because it didn't pay enough money. He actually made the comment, I wasn't happy with the cast rate. I wasn't happy with the cast rate. The cast rate. You get it. Okay. It was hard coming up with a good eunuch joke for this morning. You know. They're not just floating around out there anywhere. Seriously, though, this was the sad plight of a eunuch. I mean, often the man's situation wasn't his fault. He was the innocent victim of an accident or injury. Perhaps he was a slave and he was made a eunuch by some act of cruelty. Now to make matters worse, he's ostracized from the temple. The worship of God and all its perks and privileges were off limits to such a man. He could have been a Jew. He could have even loved God and wanted to serve Him. But his physical malady made him a second-class citizen. In light of the law, a eunuch took a seat in the back of the bus, so to speak. And all he could do about it was complain, which is what he does here in verse 3. He says, here I am, a dry tree. In a sense, a eunuch was damaged goods. Leviticus 23 also excludes him from the house of God, along along with people with other types of imperfections. In fact, it's quite a long list. Here it is. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind or lame who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or is a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scab or is a eunuch. Hey, in the Old Testament, God's house was only for the prim and proper. If you were odd in any way or dinged up or weren't the perfect body type, There was no place for you in God's house. The law of Moses banned the broken until they healed. And of all the damaged folks, the eunuch was probably the most stigmatized. He was seen as a half-man, even a part-man. Worshippers were supposed to bring their very best sacrifice to the altar. And to reinforce that lesson, only the very best were allowed to bring their very best. It was the law. And the son of the foreigner was in the same situation. He got similar treatment. According to Deuteronomy 23, verse 2, we're told, One of illegitimate birth, that is, a person who had a Gentile parent, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter into the assembly of the Lord. In in other words, if you were a child of a Gentile, your family had to wait to fill it home in God's house. You weren't accepted until the tenth generation. This certainly felt harsh for generations one through nine, no doubt about that. I mean, imagine through no fault of your own, because of your branch on the family tree, you can't worship God like everyone else. You're barred from His house. Of course, God had His reasons. 
For one, he wanted to protect his people from the corrupt spiritual practices of their pagan neighbors. But I'm sure that the left-out foreigner had a hard time appreciating God's concerns. Like a eunuch, the son of a foreigner, all he could do is whine. And this he did. He said, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. And yet, surprisingly, here in Isaiah chapter 56, God changes the house rules. He remodels his house. All of a sudden, he makes room for the broken and the damaged and the impotent and the alienated. Even the eunuch and the son of the foreigner. Before this moment, there were justifiable reasons to ban the eunuch and the foreigner, but not anymore. And all this foreshadows a new covenant that God will make with his people. And not just with Israel, but with the others he'll gather to himself, even you and me. In his spiritual temple, no longer will men be judged by their physical condition or by their pedigree, but by the attitude of their heart, by faith. Inclusion is now the watchword in God's house. Isaiah is saying that they're no longer second-class, back-of-the-bus riders on God's greyhound. Everybody in God's family travels first class. God tells Isaiah, don't let the eunuch or the foreigner say they don't belong when I say they do. In the spiritual house God is building, He gives all peoples, regardless of injury or deformity or pedigree or origin, access to His peace and His presence and His power. In fact, I love what God instructs Isaiah to tell the eunuch. He says, To them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I mean, a eunuch was a man who had said goodbye to normal family life. In his future, there would be no children to bless him. No one to take him in when he got old or to carry on his name after him. His influence was cut off. But not so for the eunuch in God's house. For God takes the childless, the lonely, into his family. He gives a place and a name better than sons and daughters. The alienated has a home with God's people. Last year when Kathy and I traveled to Italy, I bought Kathy her ticket with some frequent flyer miles that I had. And I upgraded her to first class all the way through. The plan was for her and I to split up the trip. She would fly up front in those nice little beds, those little couch things. She would fly up front for half the trip, and then we'd swap out for the second half. That was the plan. Before we took off, Kathy kind of came to the back, to the cattle car where her husband was sitting, you know, like a packed sardine, you know, in one of those little seats back there. She kissed me goodbye, said, honey, I'll see you halfway. But when she walked off, I turned to the girl next to me, and I said, Don't expect to see that woman again until this plane touches down in Italy. I know my wife too well. And I was right. She stretched out in that big first class seat, that recliner, and she never woke up. And her conscience never blinked. I never complained and she never apologized. 
Hey, she took it as a blessing from God and from Sandy. And my wife knows how to enjoy a blessing. And this is the picture I want you to see of God's house. This place, Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, is a blessing if you see it from the right perspective. If you stop holding people at bay around you, if you stop keeping your distance and making excuses and whining and complaining to God, here I am, a dry tree, nobody likes me. Would you please just try reaching out? I I hate getting all sappy, but, but if you're a dry tree, you need to get a little sappy. Love somebody and see if they don't love you back. You know, your kids may now live across the country. Your friends might have moved on. You may be new to the community and feel alone. You may be so busy with work, it's hard for you to meet people. Well, here are your sons and your daughters. The house of God is full of potential relationships that you can cultivate. You can have a name in this house, a name that's known and loved and recognized by others. See, many of us are running the rat race, and we're as easy to cuddle up with and get to know as a rat. We need to stop blaming our church and start being the church. Make a serious effort and trust God to find you a place in His family. Hey, if God made a name for the eunuch and the son of the foreigner, then He'll make a place and a name for you in His house. But there's another word that characterizes the attitude you find in God's house, and that's conviction. You see, the eunuch and the foreigner are admitted only if they're serious about a few things. Notice verse 4 reads, Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. See, God doesn't care if a man has been emasculated or if a woman feels like a foreigner. God loves damaged goods, and He wants to bring them both into His spiritual family as long as they will just hold to a couple of convictions. First, God asks us to keep His Sabbath. Now, in the Old Testament, avoiding work on Saturday was of paramount priority. God expected all His people to master Sabbath 101. The seventh day was for rest and for worship, not for work. But in the New Testament, Jesus taught that there was more to the Sabbath day. There was an attitude behind it. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, he said, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Most Jews at the time saw the Sabbath as a laborious thing. Its details were burdensome. It was a hassle rather than a helpful practice. But Jesus said you need to capture the attitude behind this. This is to help you. This is to benefit you, the worshiper. Jesus saw the Sabbath as an oasis in a wilderness of work and busyness and frantic living. He saw it as a spiritual oasis. To Jesus, the Sabbath wasn't a legalistic straitjacket. It was a life jacket. It was a lifeline to people drowning in a sea of busyness. For folks having a hard time managing life, the Sabbath was a way of sort of regaining their equilibrium, a reminder of what life was really all about. It taught us how to balance God and work and family. Sabbath was about developing a rhythm in your life. 
of work and worship, of rigor and rest, of pressure and peace. You need both these things in your life. There's a saying in archery, the bow that's always bent ceases to shoot straight. Some of us get addicted to work, and the Sabbath is our chance to relax the string on the bow. Don't let the drive of work overwhelm you. God wants us to deliberately carve out some margin in our life, some space, maybe some room in our life for worship and for rest and for family and for leisure. And Sabbath is that margin. It's a diversion from the daily grind. Sabbath is the worship component of your life. And it's got to be a conviction. If there's no conviction, if there's no determination to just do it, Sabbath won't get done. This is why the Sabbath rest was enforced in the Old Testament. While in the New Testament, God wants us to embrace the spirit of the law. Either way, Sabbath observance is a conviction. And God's house is for people with this conviction. God's house is for people who have made up their mind that life is more about worship than it is about work. Have you made up your mind that that's true? I mean, what's the use of employment if there's not some enjoyment? Sabbath is our weekly reminder that God matters most, that apart from Him, the rest of our life is vanity. We need to be convicted about the Sabbath, about the rest that God expects in our life and worship. But there's another conviction. God says that His house is for people who choose what pleases Him. Now, the eunuch and the foreigner, they were two people who had a few bad breaks in life. Born in the wrong place at the wrong time. Injured in the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't know if there's any right time for that. I mean, either deformed, either damaged. It wasn't their fault. This was not how life was supposed to pan out. And yet here are people who, despite getting the short end of the stick, they didn't become self-indulgent and self-centered and say it's all about me. Instead, they chose what pleased God. They yielded their will to God's will. You see, in today's mixed-up, gender-confused world, I've read of little boys who were injured and became eunuchs. And you know what folks did? They prescribed hormone therapy. They suggested a sex change. They wanted to redirect the boy's sexual orientation, even though same-sex behavior is prohibited by God. You see, the eunuch invited into God's house, he faced a similar dilemma. He might have been justified in his own mind or in the minds of others to explore different sexual options. But instead, he chose what pleased God. He was committed to his manhood, even when expressing it had become difficult. He fought through whatever feelings he had and temptations he felt to uphold God's concept of gender. And guess what? God invited him into his house. Let, let me just say, every one of us chooses who we want to please. Ourselves, our society, our peers, or God. I don't care how twisted or damaged a person is. When they walk through those doors right back there, 
We are going to love them. I will fight for their right to be here, for this is God's house, and it's no longer reserved for the pristine and the perfect. Folks who worship here, myself included, might be disturbed and flawed and fall short, but we all have one thing in common. We choose what pleases God. Yet on the other hand, if you live for yourself, and you only do as you please and don't care otherwise, I'm sorry, you don't belong in God's house or in this house. In His house, we live by what we're convinced is His truth, not our convenience. We've concluded that God is smarter than us, and so we choose what pleases Him. This is another conviction that is true of those who are invited into God's house. And then the last conviction that's held by the person who belongs in God's house is they hold fast his covenant. You know, the covenants were the terms of God's relationship with man, with Adam and Noah and Abraham and David, then later with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. God made promises and he established agreements or covenants. And this is mind-boggling, really, that the holy, wonderful God in heaven wants a relationship with the likes of you and me, that he wants a covenant. But see, here's the point. God didn't leave it up to people to set their own terms. In other words, to come to him however they liked. That was never an option. God is very specific. With every covenant he makes he obligates himself to people, but to only those folks who are willing to keep the terms of his covenant. You see, this weeds out all the people who want the benefits of a relationship with God, but only on their own terms. They, they want to use God to foster their own agenda, whether that's fattening their bank account or bettering their marriage or healing their disease or bringing home their wayward child. And God may do all of that for them, for He loves them and He likes to bless us, but not because we demand it. God doesn't play by our rules. He plays by His rules. You know this, people barter with God all the time. I mean, they're willing to go so far, but at some point they expect God to meet them on their terms. Sorry, God isn't going to participate with you in your covenant. If you want a relationship with God, you have to hold fast to His covenant. And in the covenant He offers us in Jesus, we are to repent and believe. This means to turn from your expectations and your ideas and let Jesus call the shots in your life. Have you done this? This is what's necessary for you to do if you want to be a part of God's house. Former missionary to India Leslie Nubigen, he wrote of a visit that he made to a remote village. The villagers were expecting him, and so they wanted to give him a warm welcome. You could enter this town either from the north or from the south. Well, the villagers figured that the missionary would enter from the south, and they had it all ready, music, fireworks, garland, fruit, dance. They were rolling out the red carpet. But Nubigen entered the village from the north. All that greeted him were goats and chickens. Well, immediately he ducked for cover and he sent word to the villagers that he was coming to town from the uh, northern end. Well, the entire village, they did an about face. 
And they reassembled the party at the opposite end of town. When they reorientated their expectations, Nubigen appeared. And this is a picture of what repentance is. Jesus realizes that we are looking for life in all the wrong places. And so he tells us to repent. That means to look in a new direction, to turn to him. Some people seek God, but at the wrong end of town. They have their own expectations. And when God fails to meet them, they bail on their faith. God expects us to adjust to his will in his word, not vice versa. This is real faith and repentance. When you hold fast God's covenant, you're expressing your love and loyalty to his authority. You're embracing his plans for you and his transformation in you and his leadership of you. And if you do, you're welcomed in his house. God's house is about inclusion, even for the eunuch and the foreigner. It's about conviction. It's about those who keep the Sabbath and choose what pleases Him and hold fast to His covenant. But it's also about devotion. That is, acts of spiritual climbing and joy and sacrifice and prayer. I love what God says to the son of the foreigner in verse 7. He says, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. When you reach a mountain, you can be sure the path is headed in what direction? Up. Up. Whenever you reach a mountain, you're in for a climb. And this is what the house of God is all about. This is why we come to church. We leave the valleys of our world, the office and the job site and the marketplace and the ballpark, and we ascend God's holy mountain and we breathe it in deeply. On the mountaintop, we get to taste the rarefied air. Above it all, we get a better view. We see clearer and far, farther. Woe to the person who lives his whole life in the valleys of this world and breathes in only the pollution. At street level, vision is hindered by fog and walls and turns in the road. Trust me, your peace of mind depends on you climbing to the mountaintop from time to time. And this is what happens at church. Hopefully, every time you come to church, you climb a little. A song Reminds you of a truth about God that you haven't thought of all week. Or the pastor says something that causes you to make an admission or maybe an adjustment. Hopefully your kids leave with a new perspective. They're exposed to God's truth, not just the world's propaganda. You climb a little when you come to church. And you know, I've never done a climb that didn't involve some effort and take some energy on my part. It's hard to climb. But no one on the mountaintop questions if it was worth it. And what goes on in God's house? Well, there's climbing, but there's also joy. The house that Jesus built is all about joy. Verse 7, I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful. The church, the house of God, should be a joyful place. Hide the pickle juice, man. The castor oil, bring out the bubbly. And I'm not talking liquor, I'm talking the living water. I'm talking the deep down satisfaction that only Jesus can tap. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Psalm 16 says to Jesus, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Church is where you find joy. See, if you want to be happy, if you want to just change your mood for a little while, there are a lot of places that will help you. 
the bar, the sporting event, the strip club, the movie theater, on and on. But if you want real joy, if you want a touch of heaven, if you want a divine lift that transcends the moment and is detached from your circumstances, then come to God's house. They say you always know when the queen is in Buckingham Palace for her flag flies overhead. And joy is the flag that lets us know that Jesus is in his house. Where Jesus rules, there is joy unspeakable. Here are the acts of devotion that should occur in God's house. Climbing and joy. And then third, sacrifice. Notice Isaiah writes for God in verse 7, Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. God's house is always a place of sacrifice. There's always been an altar in God's house. There were sacrifices of service and of praise and of thanksgiving and of dedication. And of course, there was always a sacrifice for sins. For 1,500 years, a river of blood flowed from the tabernacle and from the temple. In the Old Testament, millions of lambs were sacrificed on the altar to cover the sins of God's people. Today, though, in the spiritual temple, the church, only one lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus was identified by John as the Lamb of God. He was the perfect sacrifice. He died once for all men. Now no other blood needs to be spilled. But there are still sacrifices offered in God's house. On the spiritual altar in our hearts, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. I hope you've done that. We give to God our money, our praise, our time, our service, our talents, our gifts. Sacrifice still comes from the hearts of God's people. And then last but not least, notice God speaks through his prophet and he declares what should reign supreme in his house. In fact, he mentions it twice for emphasis. He says, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Hey, make no mistake about it. God's house should be first and foremost a house of prayer. But what is prayer? Prayer is communication with God. That's what prayer is. When we read His Word, God is talking to us. When we apply His Word to our lives, we're talking back to Him. When we hear sung the praises of God, He's talking to us again. When we worship God, we're talking to Him. When we speak to God words of love and loyalty and petition and intercession, or even when we vent our complaints, we're still talking to God. Then when we still our hearts and we listen quietly, God is talking to us. When we open ourselves to God and we moan or cry or laugh or just sit in His presence and enjoy Him, we're talking to God. And when we take a walk and suddenly our minds are flooded with heavenly thoughts, God is talking to us. Hey, add it all up and you can call it prayer. But there's a lot that goes on in God's house that is not prayer. For example, prayer is not me informing you and you informing me. It's not either of us talking politics or sports or chatting over the news or business. It's not me making career contacts and expanding my network. It's not you finding friends and looking cool. It's not some single guy or single gal checking out the opposite sex, looking for a potential spouse, although that can be accompanied by prayer. Oh, Lord, please. I'm just saying that when we come to church with an agenda other than prayer, we need to beware. 
For God's house should be first and foremost a house of prayer. But that's not all that God says. Read it again. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You see, the Jews always assumed that God's house was for their own exclusive use. The temple was a members-only club. They had sequestered off certain courts as Jews only. It never occurred to the Jews that God had a wider audience for worship and for prayer, that would a wider audience for what would go on in its precincts. His house was a house of prayer for all nations. And today this means that every church should let all people pray and then our concern should be about praying for all people. Hey, when you grasp this portrait of Jesus' house in the prophecy of Isaiah, it shines a light on an event that happened in Jesus' life. It's recorded in Mark chapter 11, verse 15. I'll, I'll read you what Mark says. So they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple. And he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written? And now you know where it was written. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. When Jesus entered the temple that day, he couldn't believe how the Jewish leaders had corrupted a place of devotion. Rather than climbing, they were sinking. Rather than joy, they were bartering and jousting. Rather than prayer, this was all about profit. And though they were selling animals to be sacrificed, this had nothing to do with real sacrifice. It was a scam. You see, to offer an animal, it had to be a certified sacrifice purchased only from the temple. And so the priests, they created a monopoly, and they sold the sacrifices at marked-up prices. They also required a temple tax, but it had to be paid with a coin minted by temple officials. Oh, no problem. Just trade your Roman coins in for temple coins at a fee, of course. These money changers were nothing but crooks. In short, the priests were making a buck off God. This was not praying to God. This was praying on people. No wonder Jesus got angry. He overturned the tables and he tossed the greedy priest out on their ear. Scripture says it was after this episode that the Jews plotted to kill him. You see, these Jewish priests, they had no devotion or conviction. They had no respect for the Sabbath rhythms. Real worship was not on their radar. Rather than rest from their work, they had brought business into God's house. And they had no intention to choose what pleased God. This was all about their desires and their ambitions. And who among them cared about God's covenant? They had no desire to know God and be used by God. Instead, they wanted to know just enough about God and His ways so that they could use Him for their own gain. And their actions in the temple that day certainly had nothing to do with any kind of inclusion. For these priests could care less about the eunuch and the sons of of the foreigner. You know, it's interesting, these shenanigans, this big flea market they were holding, it was in the outer court. This was the one place on the temple platform where the eunuch and the foreigner could come. And this meant that in the eyes of those who needed God most, his glory was being tainted. His purposes were being marred. 
Rather than inviting the eunuch and the son of the foreigner, the priests were turning them off with their hypocrisy. This is why Jesus prohibited the Jews from even shuttling their wares across the temple compound. As they trampled through the outer court with their stuff and their loot, they were making a mockery of worship. They had turned the temple into a den of thieves. And tragically, this ensured that the outsiders would stay on the outside, that the foreigner would die without a place to call home, and the eunuch's name would truly be forgotten. Here's the takeaway for us today. Is this house, Calvary Chapel, is this his house? Are we a place of inclusion? Do we provide people a name and a place? Does the outcast have a home here? Do we hold common convictions? Is worship more vital to us than work? Do we seek to please God? Do we relate to God on His terms, not our own? And how's our devotion? Are we climbing spiritually or are we standing still? Is joy our hallmark? Is there an altar here? Are sacrifices being made by you, by me? Is prayer our agenda? Remember, you can tell a lot about a person by looking at his house. Let's reflect on our Lord Jesus and let's be his house.